You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Uh, very welcome to this podcast. Uh, my name is Martin Krog. I'm the head of the Russia and Eurasia program with the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Uh, it is my great privilege and honor to introduce our two guests. Uh, Pavlo Klimkin is a seasoned diplomat and uh, the former Ukrainian Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs from 2014 to 2019. He is also joined by a well-renowned academic and scholar, uh, Andreas Umland, who is German by origin, but now for many years working in Kiev at the Kiev Mohila Academy a well-known political scientist and expert on Eastern Europe. Um, again, it's my great privilege to have you here. Uh, you recently uh, wrote a very good paper for us at the Institute, Ukraine's Prospects for Integration with the EU and NATO. And this paper it is published against the backdrop of one of the largest and most severe pandemics in modern history. Uh, but anyhow, Several important topics uh, remain important, uh, although they have receded into the background. Uh, in Ukraine, the war with Russia continues in the east. Crimea remains under occupation. And there are still economic reforms and negotiations with the IMF that remains on the agenda and remains much discussed. Um, how do you... Uh, see Ukraine's challenges now in the short run, but also in the longer term perspective? Firstly, I believe uh, that uh, a kind of linear development uh, for our region and uh, basically for, for Europe uh, is over. It does not mean uh, that uh, in the foreseeable future, uh, we will have, uh, you know, uh, kind of developments uh, which are gonna blow up uh, our minds, uh, but uh, normality in the sense of our understanding of, uh, so to say, evolutionary approach uh, to politics in our region is over. Secondly, for Ukraine is uh, is it's it's even more of a challenge because uh, uh, countries uh, now reacting to uh, to the pandemics uh, basically differ in two uh, main categories, not uh, along the democratic or authoritarian line or others, but basically the countries with better governance or, you know, in an ideal way, good governance uh, and no governance. And unfortunately, Ukraine uh, falls uh, into the second category. Our, our uh, institutions, uh, our state institutions uh, are far weaker than uh, our people and our civil society. It's traditionally the case for Ukraine, but it's really visible now. Uh, uh, it's it's something which is even palpable now if you uh, if you follow the situation in Ukraine. 
Thirdly, there is a fundamental lack of both vision and strategy and the political will and capacity to implement on this strategy. And uh, on <clears throat> pandemics, uh, you, should, uh, you should be strategic and you should be tough in uh, realizing your strategic vision. So, and it's my last point. Uh, uh, we have now uh, simultaneously a number of fundamental challenges. Russian aggression is there. And I believe with the current uh, piling up of problems in Russia, the situation uh, for Ukraine is more dangerous and not less dangerous from Russia. It's a uh, coronavirus pandemics, uh, which is a fundamental challenge for the quality of our institutions. And thirdly, it's a number of other challenges also piling up uh, for us, like climate change for Ukraine, like, uh, you know, Agriculture is, uh, is, 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 uh, is very important for us. What's going on uh, presents a fundamental challenge uh, for, uh, for the years to come. And of course, uh, changing of uh, geopolitical patterns uh, also presents a fundamental, uh, fundamental problem for Ukraine. So we are in a kind of unique situation where a number of challenges uh, simply not just coincide in space and time, but also overlap. And this overlap is non-linear. Andreas? Yes, maybe I'll just follow up on, on this and mention here the, um, what one could say, the sort of the supply side. So the, um, the, the demand side here on the Ukrainian um, part will basically stay the same with regard to Western integration as far uh, as I can see that, and that we will have um, a continuation of this uh, policy um, of as close as um, possible integration with the West and above all with the European Union and NATO. Um, and as Pablo mentioned, um, um, the demand for this integration will perhaps rather grow as a result of the pandemic, both because of the um, internal uh, factors and also because um, in these sort of changing times, um, Russia could be, become even more threatening to, um, uh, to to Ukraine. And so the, there will be more demand and we can only hope, as, as Pavla indicated, that perhaps this demand for Western integration and common security will create new political will in Ukraine for reforms and for um, uh, approaching uh, the standards of the EU and NATO so as to um, uh, enhance the, the, the Western integration of, of Ukraine. But on the other side, on the supply side, on the part of the organization that could uh, supply this integration and security to Ukraine, um, we see in this paper that we published with you the problem that, um, as we think, the most likely um, result of the pandemic for the EU and NATO will be that the, um, the, the already limited openness of these um, organizations to um, uh, the wish for integration from such countries and, uh, as Georgia and Ukraine 
and with regard to the EU, also Moldova, there will be further closeness, as we as we think. That is a likely scenario that uh, there could be, um, uh, so to say, more problems in approaching these organizations. And uh, that's why we have developed in this uh, paper uh, some uh, sort of um, intermediate steps that Ukraine could take towards um, integration with the West without yet um, starting membership uh, organizations. And we speak in this paper about uh, bilateral, uh, bilateral relations and also multilateral uh, relations within uh, Central Europe um, that could, for this interregnum, before um, um, uh, Ukraine becomes a member of the EU and NATO, um, further Ukraine's Western integration uh, before accession to, to the EU um, and NATO, proceeding from the assumption that perhaps uh, this uh, interregnum before the accession will uh, be longer than, um, than we, uh, we, we would have thought before the pandemic. Um, there's also, of course, then uh, a positive scenario maybe that um, there will be um, a, a sort of rethinking of the identities of the EU and NATO, which could perhaps as a result of the pandemic make them more open, more accessible for Ukraine, Georgia, and um, in, in the case of the um, EU, also Moldova. There's also a more negative um, scenario that the um, EU and NATO could either uh, fall apart or completely close themselves, which would they then make them inaccessible, basically, for Ukraine and uh, also Georgia and Moldova. But we, we thought that this sort of um, uh, more skepticism towards enlargement um, is in the future, in the foreseeable future, the perhaps most likely scenario, and that Ukraine simply will have to deal with this uh, um, most likely, as, as we think, um, uh, sort of moderately um, pessimistic scenario that we proceed from in this paper. Uh, Andreas uh, and Pablo, you as well, you mentioned that there is in Ukraine a demand from the population for, for West integration. Um, all, Zelensky, the current president of Ukraine, he won a landslide victory uh, soon about, well, about two years ago. Uh, how is he responding? How is the government of Ukraine responding to these demands from Ukrainian society? It's important to understand that demand, not like today, but uh, also had been there, let's say, 10 years ago. But the fundamental point behind this demand is different now. Ten years ago, uh, Ukrainians uh, asked about the European Union, mainly answered uh, with points about prosperity, about money from the European Union, and now asked about why actually, why we, do we need uh, the European uh, Union, why do we need the European integration? Why it's important? The fundamental answer, underlying answer, 70 plus percent, uh, look, it's about rules. It's about European rules. Ukrainians uh, now know the European Union far better than before, because association agreement, because of visa-free, actually because of a lot of uh, migrants 
now uh, in the European Union, the, the perception about European Union is different. And uh, the, current, uh, the current authorities, uh, they are, of course, uh, very cautious in the sense of uh, not trying to, uh, I would say, irritate the Russians. Uh, a year ago, uh, Zelensky came uh, with a fundamental message, uh, let's uh, sort out the situation in Donbass. It's, uh, it's not working this way, and uh, it's clear why, because uh, our mere existence, not even success, but our mere existence as a democratic and European country, as democratic and European society, runs uh, fundamentally against uh, the ideology and uh, so-called scripts uh, in Russian uh, against uh, Russian ideology. It's against uh, the sense uh, Putin's model, uh, you know, is built upon. So uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult here, here to balance. Balancing is not the right approach, uh, but uh, here it's important simply not to freeze existing identities and uh, Andreas, uh, was speaking about identities in, in the Central Europe. My point, uh, we need not to freeze, but to lead and, uh, and to go forward. And uh, wrapping up what Andreas has just said, it would be important to, so to say, reload of the Eastern Europe. Actually, the, the, the Eastern and Central Europe uh, had been completely changed because of the two world wars, uh, Great Famine, Holodomor, Holocaust. We need to redress the Central Europe to a sense of uh, democracy, rule of law, and the new sense of unity. And actually Sweden is a, is a driver behind the Eastern Partnership. And uh, I've just wrapped up uh, the concept, the kind of first draft, for our common paper on the Eastern Partnership and some ideas on the uh, Central Europe. Andreas would fiercely <laughs> criticize me uh, tomorrow. Okay, just kidding. But the fundamental point, and I believe it's uh, in our all interest, is to give a sense on how to, uh, to go on with our European integration in the foreseeable future, not, you know, in the kind of mid run in uh, seven years or 10 years, because it's eternity for Ukrainian politics and, and for Ukrainian people. But really now with some ideas, but uh, really streamlined, consistent and strategic vision, how we could drive our European integration uh, now. And I believe the ideas are there. It's simply important to have, uh, as I've said, consistent vision, clear strategy, political will to realize it, and people, uh, because uh, at the end of the day, it's about, uh, it's about people. As Pavlo mentioned, uh, there's an older interest of Ukrainians for European integration, and which has now been modified by better knowledge of the European Union and also, I would add to that, most recently, it has been added by this request, not only for, um, for prosperity, and, uh, and, but 
also for rules and for, um, uh, so to say, European, um, for the European acquis, communautaire, one could say, of the EU, and also for European security. Uh, sometimes it is forgotten that, uh, however, the official policy of Ukraine for entering um, the European Union is quite old. Um, th there have been already resolutions by the late Soviet um, uh, Ukrainian parliament in the last two years of the Soviet Union, 1990-1991, for asking um, in resolutions of this uh, still Soviet um, Rada, uh, for um, the government to, to uh, further the um, uh, cooperation of the Soviet uh, Republic, uh, Ukrainian Soviet Republic, with, uh, with the European communities then. And then there was in 1998 um, the decree um, um, of the then President Leonid Kuchma that made uh, the, uh, the ex uh, accession to the European Union an official policy of the um, European uh, of the of Ukraine in 2003 there followed then a law um, that um, made uh, the accession to not only the European Union but also to NATO an official policy um, of um, of Ukraine and in 2019 then um, um, just before the elections um, uh, presidential elections uh, the constitution of Ukraine was changed and now um, accession to the European Union and uh, to NATO are uh, constitutionally uh, fixed uh, um, state uh, uh, goals of, um, of Ukraine. Um, but as, as Pavlo indicated, um, uh, perhaps for the, for the next years, um, um, one of the additional fo foci of the Ukrainian um, policies towards um, its Western neighbors could be to focus on the Central European context um, because, um, as I indicated uh, before and as, and as we outline in the, in the paper, um, the accession to the European Union at NATO and maybe now because of the pandemic further away. And um, in that connection, then Central Europe gains additional um, uh, importance um, and uh, we, we indicated in this paper um, that uh, uh, some of the ways uh, to sort of activate this Central European identity and to, um, to utilize it for um, creating, um, as a first step towards uh, an accession to the European Union, um, structures within um, Central Europe uh, that would, um, would sort of precede the accession um, and uh, create for the for the time being uh, closer relations with uh, such countries as, as Poland, Romania, uh, the Baltic uh, countries um, that would not interfere uh, with the Eastern Partnership or with the association uh, process, but uh, would sort of um, complement um, the um, uh, the official previous. Um, uh, Ukrainian policy of Western integration with this sort of central European element uh, where um, there would then be a sort of an additional line of, um, of, of action where, uh, which would more focus on, on the immediate neighbors of, of Ukraine um, to the West um, and try to see how much such structures, let's say, um, as the three C's initiative um, inside the European Union or the Bucharest 9 group in, inside NATO could be perhaps uh, utilized for countries like, um, like Ukraine and Georgia. Uh, so maybe they could join these structures. 
and that would be then um, sort of initial first steps towards um, an accession to the European uh, Union um, and NATO. So, and, and we've we've outlined this a little in a little bit more detail um, in the um, in the paper. Thank you. Um, indeed, I recommend all the, uh, any everybody who listens to this uh, podcast. If you haven't read the paper yet, please visit uh, ui.se and download uh, the paper. Um, uh, uh, Pavlo, uh, as foreign minister of Ukraine, you negotiated the association agreement with the European Union. Uh, if you were to advise uh, the Ukrainian government today, but also Brussels, uh, what should be the next step? How, how do you see the next step forward after the association agreement? <clears throat> now uh, we are about uh, to upgrade the association agreement. There is a clause in the agreement about uh, about the chance uh, of upgrading uh, the agreement uh, five years uh, after the signing. But it's, it's of course, a kind of uh, limited chance because uh, it's mainly focused on uh, trade part and sectoral part. And everything which would uh, require or would even require discussion uh, about uh, further repeated ratification is, of course, a non-go under, under current conditions. So uh, for me, the point should be to say very clearly that Ukraine has a European future. European future in the sense of taking up all the opportunities of the European integration. And uh, such a political statement uh, should be supported, of course, with a number of instruments to, uh, to uh, support uh, Ukraine on, on this way. And of course, uh, we are pragmatic, uh, you know, we are pragmatic in the sense of understanding that such message uh, is unlikely to be given to the whole uh, Eastern Partnership. But uh, it's, uh, it's also very clear that uh, we need uh, now to uh, clearly understand that it's not just about money. Uh, it's not just about new financial opportunities. It's about completely different approach uh, towards how to work with Ukraine, how to work with Ukrainian institutions, how to engage, how to be proactive on all spheres, about security-related spheres. Because for the European Union, uh, security in Ukraine, uh, I believe, is fundamental for, for its own security and for the future security of the enlarged European Union. It's also clear that the geopolitical situation uh, in, uh, you know, in, in Europe will keep changes. If you cast a look on the Eastern Partnership, we have six countries, very different countries, and it's kind of manifestation that even the whole uh, sense of definition of the post-Soviet space is over. Uh, Post-Soviet mentality is partly, unfortunately, still there, but post-Soviet space is over. And uh, the European Union is well advised 
And Sweden is, of course, on the on the right side here, so to say. I discussed it many times with Swedish officials, starting from Carl Bildt. Uh, but uh, here, the European Union is well advised to take up a strategic approach. And under current conditions, of course, we all understand that it's not going to happen tomorrow. But such a strategic approach is fundamentally fair in the sense of reacting to the current, current and future realities. Uh, the, you know, the sense of the former USSR or Russian Empire or whatever could be, you know, upgraded in, uh, in the Russian constitutions is not going to come forward because it's not about geopolitics. At the end of the day, it's even not about EU and NATO membership. It's about Ukrainians, Ukrainian people who are, who are not willing to uh, be part of the, you know, Putin's, uh, Putin's reality anymore. And it's the point, uh, you know, I've been trying to, uh, to, uh, to get to people who are, who are, you know, kind of, uh, of geopolitical uh, mentality. So my point, let's be strategic. Let's uh, face uh, and let's stage our approach in practical steps working together on all the pattern of issues uh, which are important for the European Union and for Ukraine. And let's work with Ukraine uh, to make Ukraine a real leader in, uh, in the Eastern European space uh, on all key issues. And uh, I mean here triangle of uh, Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. Who, are, who have frustration agreements and visa-free. I mean here the importance of embracing Guam, and uh, it's Moldova, Ukraine, uh, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. It's, uh, it's silly simply to leave Azerbaijan for Russia. And it's about effective engagement with Belarus, because uh, the future of the Central Europe is not complete without uh, without Belarus to join. Yeah, I would see here just to uh, to follow up uh, on Pavlo here these uh, uh, three lines, um, um, and maybe I can be here a bit more concrete um, than uh, uh, Pavlo as a diplomat uh, or a former diplomat uh, can be. I mean, the what we are talking about here is that what of course Ukraine has been asking for. Um, uh, basically more than two decades now is a membership perspective, uh, um, an explicit uh, statement in, in an official document of the European Union uh, that, would, um, uh, that would say that uh, Ukraine can become a member once it is ready um, for, for membership. Um, the usual uh, Western uh, reply one hears to that um, is uh, that, uh, well, this is in the um, Treaty on the European Union, um, Article 40, 46 or 7 or 49, something like that. I can't remember the exact um, number of the article anyway, which says that um, every, every, every Euro European U country can become a member of the European Union. But the, um, the provision of um, and the formulation and the announcement of an, um, a specific membership uh, perspective for a country has been shown in the research about um, 
uh, Europeanization to be important in uh, research by Milana Vachudova or Frank Schimmelpfennig. It, um, the result of this research is um, uh, of European studies is that the, that an explicit membership perspective and not only an indirect membership perspective as it is um, already in the uh, European Union Treaty is actually quite important for Europeanization and that it, it provides an additional driver um, and focus and motivation and uh, factor for um, the implementation of um, Europe, of the acquis communautaire for um, implementation of, if you want to call them this way, European values in in the countries um, that um, that are um, have a chance for accession, and therefore this is, this it does actually play a role and uh, well and. Uh, uh, I would say that those countries um, in in the European Union that um, that are of this opinion that a membership perspective for um, Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova uh, would be important uh, to provide should uh, continue doing so. Um, the European Parliament has, of course, already many times asked um, the Council and the Commission to do something in that rega regard. Um, but that is only the European Parliament, and the European Parliament unfortunately cannot itself uh, provide a membership, uh, explicit membership perspective. Um, so um, that, would, that would be, I guess, a, a major request from these countries, at least that's how I, I read the, the foreign policies of Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova, that they would still very much like to get this, um, um, this formulation, which let's say Turkey has already since 1962, um, since its uh, association agreement with the um, European Union uh, or then European communities. Um, um, so this is not, would not be something extra, extraordinary. Another uh, policy, I guess, for, the, um, uh, for countries like Sweden and for other member countries of the EU could be to provide a sort of backup, as, uh, as Sweden has already done, um, for the East European member countries of the European Union in their policies towards um, Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova. The Eastern Partnership was already, I think, something um, uh, when it was um, set up um, where, uh, where Sweden played this role, where it teamed up with Poland and uh, initiated this, um, um, this partnership. And, uh, uh, and that would be something, I guess, also important for the future, that if there is, for instance, um, such uh, such an idea in in Central Europe to create um, a, a new structure in Central Europe or to enlarge the Three Seas Initiative, let's say, um, and and let uh, Ukraine, Georgia, and and Moldova perhaps join the Three Seas Initiative, uh, then I think um, countries like Poland and Romania they would need, and or the Baltic countries they would need a sort of a backup from West European countries like Sweden. Uh, in order um, to uh, to get this um, sort of enlargement of the three seas initiative accepted by other West European countries, so that would be one uh, one way um, uh, or second way to go. And the third um, thing with, which we have outlined in in the paper with Pavlo is that um, uh, certain bilateral relations could be uh, strengthened and. We mentioned in our paper only the bilateral relations of Ukraine and Georgia with um, with the United States, but um, and uh, perhaps a transformation or an upgrade of the strategic partnerships um, that um, 
the United States ha has already with the, um, the the strategic partnership charters that the U.S. and and, and Georgia have have already signed, and also Ukraine and um, and the U.S. have signed. But this could also apply, I would say, to other bilateral relations with um, with uh, other Western countries, uh, including Sweden, where perhaps um, uh, new new steps could be taken towards deepening um, these these bilateral relations and thereby thereby also strengthening Western integration of Ukraine without uh, or before um, um, membership um, ex uh, um, negotiations uh, with, uh, with the EU and NATO. How does the EU-Moscow relationship impact Ukrainian-EU integration? Is there a connection here? Uh, a balancing sort of of sorts that uh, we should be aware of. It's basically about a point of reference here. Uh, of course, Russia is a reality. We don't like the current Russian reality and the Russian regime basically controlling uh, controlling Russia, but it's a reality, and we have to talk to this reality. Despite uh, Russian occupation of uh, the Crimea and Donbas, but uh, it's critically important not just for Ukraine but also for the European Union to have consistent strategic policy towards Russia. It it uh, there, there has never been any such policy before 2014. It. Uh, it was always fundamental lack uh, of consensus. And even now, it's more about a uh, common uh, denominator approach. But Russia fundamentally underestimated the, the potential of the EU solidarity and transatlantic solidarity. Uh, Russia underestimated uh, also strategic uh, projections the European Union is able to uh, to deliver both internally and uh, and externally so my point uh, of course it's important to uh, understand current reality in Russia of course it's important to predict uh, you know, reality reaction of uh, of Russia, or better to say, of uh, of the Russian president, because it's mainly about uh, one person, and all decisions about Ukraine, uh, it's uh, it's about uh, it's about Vladimir Putin. But uh, the only, and I mean, uh, it's both my uh, my educated. Uh, educated guess and knowledge from all kind of uh, negotiations and contacts. The only effective way to talk to the Russians is from the point of uh, consistent, uh, consistent and strategic policy. The Russian idea is simply to weaken up fundamentally the European Union. Russia does not like even the fact that the European Union is a player especially especially in Europe. Russia would love to have not just, uh, let's say, Yalta 3.1, uh, 3 3.2, whatever, 
Russia would love to get back to the mentality of the Vienna Congress, of the mentality of the beginning of 19th century, you know, coalitions, uh, zones of influence, uh, defense perimeters. You know, this, uh, this definition uh, reality, this definition mentality is, uh, is there in Russia. And it's also important, it's, it's about uh, zero game, uh, you know, zero game policy. And in Russia, it's, it's also an established mentality. So uh, it, try to engage Russia is important. But Russia, at least current Russia, could be engaged only and exclusively from the point of strength. And it should be strength and solidarity from, uh, from the European Union and from everybody supporting the European Union and, of course, transatlantic solidarity. Because what works is definitely transatlantic solidarity, combination of clear, kind and consistent policy by the whole transatlantic community. Yes, I would also underline what, what Pablo just said and uh, just mentioned that unfortunately, while uh, the uh, sanctions that the EU has now introduced are uh, quite impressive and they perhaps have uh, surprised Russia against the background of the inactivity of the EU with regard to Transnistria, Abkhazia, and South Ossetia, um, still the European Union has used only a small, a small um, part of its potential um, economic leverage towards uh, Russia, and uh, there's still a lot that uh, the European Union and uh, um, uh, the, the US uh, and uh, they all together could could do to exert more pressure. On, on Russia with regard to um, the occupied territories in Moldova, Georgia, and um, and Ukraine. So I think the um, uh, this is clear that uh, this has to continue as long as the current uh, political preferences in Moscow are um, as they are. However, I would also, and maybe I'm going here beyond what uh, Pavlo would uh, regard as, as useful for, for now, um, uh, there, there could be also discussion about another Russia that perhaps as a result of the pandemic, as a result of the fall of the uh, energy prices, um, uh, there could be a political change uh, in the wings in, in Moscow. I think it would certainly have to include um, the departure of Putin. And uh, there could be um, a future regime that perhaps is different from the current one. Some people fear, of course, that it could be worse than the current one, um, even uh, more aggressive than um, the current one. Uh, but there's also an option, I think, for a, uh, for a different regime. And here, I think, um, again, sort of countries like Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova come, come in because they could, in a future, in a better future, with a different uh, regime in Moscow in place, uh, provide sort of templates of how the future relationship uh, between the EU and, and Russia could develop uh, a visa-free regime, um, an association agreement. These are basically ins instruments that uh, could be applied also to a different Russia in the future um, uh, when, uh, when Russia has withdrawn its troops from uh, Moldova, Georgia, and um, Ukraine has um, returned to a sort of pro-European path, which it tried to, to take, or a part of the 
Russian elite was promoting, uh, I would say, in the early 1990s. Um, for that um, moment, I think then these um, instruments that the European Union has now applied with regard to um, uh, the Eastern Partnership countries, and um, especially with re regard to the three countries that received these association agreements, these could be models uh, for um, a totally different relationship between the EU and, and Russia. Maybe it would be would make sense already to, to say today already that this is an alternative relationship that, um, that could be in the future also um, uh, realistic for, um, for Russia and, and the EU if, uh, if Russia uh, fundamentally changes its geopolitical um, stance and uh, basically lets all the post-Soviet republics go their own way um, and um, does not try to implement a sort of a modified Brezhnev doctrine or you could call it a Putin doctrine in, in the former um, post-Soviet space. Maybe this is um, uh, for Pavlo and maybe also for the listeners here of this podcast um, a far too uh, optimistic and, uh, and a positive outlook. Um, but um, I would say that now the pandemic is, is opening a lot of possible different futures. And, um, and one of the possible futures is that perhaps we will have um, uh, a change in the, in the political, general political outlook uh, of, um, of the Moscow elite as a result of, this, uh, of the disappearance of Russia as an energy superpower. This was the basically the, the main uh, or one of the main policies for the last 20 years uh, when Russia tried to position itself as a superpower based of course on the on, on military might but also on on energy exports and if then if now the energy exports lose their their leverage their importance and make actually Russia vulnerable then perhaps we could also see um, a different philosophy of foreign policies emerging in a post-Putinist uh, Russia, and and the and the EU should also prepare the uh, her, uh, itself for that, and and make actually offers for for such a positive turn in Moscow. Andreas Omland, uh, I think that uh, your uh, thoughtful and very uh, I say in interesting reflections will be our last words in this discussion. Pablo and Andreas, uh, I thank both of you for your participation, and to the listeners for listening all this way. Uh, if you haven't read the paper again, please go to the website ui.se and download the paper on Ukraine's Western integration. Thank you again for listening. Thanks. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. Catch you later.